Welcome to the Happy Hearted Kids Podcast. This is Renee Kashmiri, owner of Thrive Child Development Services in Newton, Massachusetts. On episode six, we're going to be talking about how to support adults so that we can support our kids. If you were a parent struggling with self-care, if you were a teacher wondering about what kinds of practices you should be implementing to take care of yourself so that you can ultimately teach your kids, or if you're an administrator, particularly if you're an administrator, thinking about ways that you can support your teachers and your other employees to make sure that they are coming to work every single day feeling supported and able to appropriately teach and support their kids, this podcast is for you. Hey, hey, friends. Welcome back. It's been a few weeks since I've had the chance to get back into this space with you all, which bums me out a little. But as we shift into the busy holiday season, I am practicing showing myself grace, compassion, acceptance in sort of not being able to churn out quite as much content as I'm able to at other points in the year. And in a very appropriate alignment with this mentality, I'm super excited to be back here today talking about a topic that I'm truly passionate about. And that's this concept of how we can effectively support ourselves and the people around us as adults so that we're able to truly align with and embody the kind of parents, teachers, caregivers that we're sort of aiming to be for our children. So I truly and deeply feel that this is one of the most important and pressing conversations that needs to be had when we talk about raising and teaching socially and emotionally healthy kids. And it's a concept that I think we're really great at talking about in theory, but I think less great at putting into practice. Um, and really the bottom line is that if we want, if we want to invest in the social emotional cognitive, academic development of our children, we have to first prioritize the self-care and emotional well-being of the people who help them thrive. These are teachers, these are parents, these are counselors, um, other caregivers. Um, And the heart of the reasoning behind that is that our kids are typically only as regulated as we are. So our children, our teens, our students, um, they get all their cues for how to respond to stress, disappointment, anger, frustration, from sort of watching us and co-regulating with us as adults. And I think a lot of times as adults, we really find ourselves in emotional states that we like don't necessarily aim for our kids to mimic. Um, And I think some of this is just the reality of the fact that teaching and raising children is an inherently difficult job. But I also think a large contributor to our own struggles with emotional regulation is like the impossible standard that we as adults are often holding ourselves to, um, especially in a society that really very much glorifies doing over being. Um, You know, parents and teachers are often being asked to do more with less Um, This sort of boom of technology in recent years has made work-life boundaries extremely blurry, right? Like you might get emails at all hours of the night. Um, You know, there's there's less of that sense of like, I go home at five, I clock out, I spend time with my family, I, I, you know, regroup, I rest, and I come back in the morning. Um, You know, there's really this blur in work-life balance. Um, And in many ways, our sense of community support, especially when it comes to raising children, has become to erode. Um, A lot of parents are doing this in sort of what feels like a vacuum. Um, 
you know, sort of gone are the days where everybody in the neighborhood kind of like looked out for each other and pitched in. Some neighborhoods are still like that, but for a large majority of, of the country and the world, that's not true anymore. Um, and this makes a lot of parents and teachers feel like they're on this journey alone and that they sort of need to be everything for everyone else first and everything for themselves second because they're they're really doing this they're really on this journey by themselves and the problem with that is that when we don't prioritize the well-being of adults it's impossible to invest in the well-being of our kids and when we feel alone or isolated or depleted um, or excessively overwhelmed it's really hard to be like the mindful present adults that many of us aim to be and it's, I think it's really hard to genuinely connect with our kids when we feel sort of wholly disconnected from ourselves. So let's talk about supporting adults. The first topic I want to touch upon is self-care because I think there's a ton of misinformation out there about what self-care is. And ultimately, I really believe that self-care is something that all of us, regardless of circumstances, can fit into our lives. Um, and I think the very common assumption of like, I either don't have the time or don't have the means for self-care is actually in and of itself indicative of a misunderstanding of what self-care means. So as a jumping off point, I want to clarify what self-care is and what it's not and give you a few real life examples of how I work self-care into a busy schedule. So let's start with just the very basic definition of self-care. Self-care is defined as the practice of taking action to preserve or improve one's own health. That's it. That's the whole definition. And so I want to point out a few things about this definition that I, I, I'm hoping will restructure our understanding of what self-care looks like. Number one, nowhere in the definition of self-care does it indicate that this is synonymous with like indulgence or pampering. Um, so while trips to like a tropical island or visits to a spa or a shopping spree are probably all enjoyable and like satisfying splurges, they're not actually self-care. They're just that. They're splurges or indulgences. And so to clarify, I'm not knocking indulgences. It's wonderful to be able to make them. If you are in a privileged enough position to be able to make them, that's great. But ultimately, these aren't the regular habits that are going to positively impact your health in a sustainable and impactful way. Um, and the research shows that these kind of like one-off experiences barely move the needle, if at all, um, when it comes to our stress management and our overall emotional well-being. And on top of this, I think to sort of like compound the issue of how ineffective some of these like fun little indulgences ultimately are for our overall health, um, I think the misconception that self-care is just about like taking an hour to go get a manicure or sit in a bathtub full of rose petals um, is sort of what, um, part, or at least part of what discourages many of us from actively incorporating self-care into our lives. Um, so as the definition of self-care shows, this doesn't have to require a large chunk of time or money. It simply requires a commitment to adopting some regular practices or habits that have a positive impact on our health. Number two, the very crux of the definition of self-care is this phrase, the practice of taking action. And I think this is where another misconception about self-care lies. Self-care often looks like work. 
It's not a passive experience that sort of just happens to us. It's an active investment that we make in ourselves and practice on a regular basis. This is often another reason why we find ourselves not following through on self-care. Some of the best things we can do for our mental, emotional, and physical health are not like glitzy or trendy. They're smaller habits that we've committed to sticking to consistently. And this is a lot of times just like a little less glamorous. It doesn't look like, you know, an Instagram influencer's post on self-care. So what is self-care then? Really, self-care is any activity that we deliberately do to take care of our health. And this is going to look different for all of us. So we all have different temperaments, interests, responsibilities, activities that sort of fill our cups. Um, So there's really no cut and dry definition of what exact activities qualify as self-care or what this should or shouldn't look like for you. Um, so for reference, here's what some, some of what self-care looks like for me. I have a number of practices, um, but here are a few that I do. And this is not implying that these practices are necessarily the right habits for you, but simply a frame of reference for what actually makes up the heart of self-care and how like quote unquote boring <laughs> some of these practices might actually look on paper. So for me personally, I find that my emotions fluctuate drastically depending on my diet. Um, while this isn't true for everyone, it is true for me. When I've spent a few days like eating lots of processed food, relying really heavily on like sugar or lattes from Starbucks, or if I've been drinking more alcohol than usual, all of these things tend to come up particularly around the holidays, which is where we are right now. Um, I can like quite literally feel my emotional state shift into a less ideal place. So for me, I take one hour a week to meal prep my entire week. And I think this is a key thing to understand about self-care. There are plenty of weeks I don't feel like doing it. I would rather spend that hour watching TV or reading a book or online shopping. But at the end of the day, this is a habit that I've committed to doing even when I don't feel like it because I know that the result will be that for the rest of the week, I have food that fuels my healthy emotional state that I don't have to spend much time thinking about, which means that I'm more likely to eat in a way that gives me mental clarity by sort of taking a lot of the daily planning or preparation or decision making out of my food choices. Um, Does my meal prepping look like it belongs on an influencer's feed? Definitely not. Um, Is it always something I feel like doing in the moment? 100% no. But it's an investment I've made in my emotional health that I commit to because I know that in the long term, this is a self-care habit that helps me manage my stress and emotional fluctuations. Um, Another thing that I do as self-care is to regularly aim for eight hours of sleep a night. No excuses. I mean, no excuses, except occasionally if our son is like up early or in the middle of the night or something like that. But going to bed at 9 p.m. is not glamorous, that's for sure. Um, Especially when there's a to-do list that's like a mile long that I still haven't gotten to. Um, My instinct can be to stay up and just kind of try to churn away at things. Or um, a lot of times I find myself mindlessly scrolling on Instagram um, because I'm just not focused at that time of night. Um, But again, I know that while going to bed early might not feel like cool or fun or hip, Um, and it doesn't give me that immediate gratification of like, oh, I need to check things off my to-do list, 
I know that when I consistently commit to an early bedtime, I wake up the next morning with the emotional presence I need as an adult. And ultimately, I get that to-do list done much faster in the morning after a good night's rest if I just go to bed and invest in that time. So while these are just my examples, and they obviously might not work for everyone depending on where you are in life, um, the point here is that self-care often doesn't look like cool or trendy. And to the contrary, oftentimes self-care habits are practices that in the moment feel super mundane and we'd rather put off in favor of doing something more fun Um, but in the long run support our mental and emotional health and of course like little moments of indulgence are also helpful too twice a week I make a like do-it-yourself face mask out of common kitchen staples and pamper my face a little bit while I brush my teeth and get ready for bedtime Again, this is something that makes me feel happy and refreshed, but it isn't a substantial financial expense or time commitment. Um, So this is why I say that I truly believe that we all have the capacity to squeeze in self-care practices, no matter our time restrictions, financial circumstances, or responsibilities. Um, And my first piece of advice in supporting your kids is to establish a self-care routine that helps to support your mental and emotional health. This goes for parents, this goes for teachers. Either way, establish a self-care routine. Um, If you have the means and the time to go to the spa three times a week, then great, go for it. If that's your self-care, that's wonderful. Um, But I hope the point um, that you take from this in using some of my examples is that it doesn't have to be that elaborate and it doesn't have to be time-consuming or a financial drain to take care of yourself. So when you're establishing a self-care routine, I encourage you to ask a few basic questions. One, what energizes me? Um, Am I energized by solitude or by interaction? For me personally, I'm an introvert. Um, Social stimulation, it can be really draining for me. What I need at the end of the day is some time to myself, whether that's reading a book or even when I mentioned I meal prep. When I meal prep, I'll throw on some music. Nobody's really talking to me. I can kind of get in the zone that works for me. Other people are really energized by being with people. Are you energized by like making plans with friends consistently or by picking up the phone and calling someone close to you? Um, So ask that. What is it that energizes you? And then where am I currently spending my time? And are these activities supporting my health? So (laughs) here's a tip. Turn on the time limit notifications on your phone. I'm not sure about Androids, but I know that iPhones have this, where you can turn on like a limit where if you spend X amount of hours or minutes on social media, it'll give you a little alert. If you spend X amount of hours on your phone as a whole, it'll give you a little alert. Spoiler alert. alert. You will be amazed and maybe horrified by how much time you spend on your phone. Trust me. I am not someone who, um, I think in comparison to other people, uh, considers myself to be a heavy phone user and I still was really amazed by how much time I waste on my phone Um, so ask yourself questions like that where am I currently spending my time and is that time supporting your health right me scrolling Instagram mindlessly is probably not supporting my health there are better things I could do at that time and by setting a limit on my phone a little reminder it reminds me to like shut it down and go do something else and then lastly what are some of my triggers to feeling overwhelmed, stressed, dysregulated? And what are small steps I could take to give myself support around those triggers? Like 
is it feeling disconnected with friends? Is that really hard for me? Is it not having enough time alone? Is it not moving my body in a way that feels good to me? Um, this could be, even be something really small. I find myself stressed when I haven't made my bed in the morning or if I haven't washed my hair in a few days. Um, so these are little things we do for ourselves that count as self-care too. And when we add up the commitment to all these little things that we're willing to invest in doing for ourselves, what we ultimately come out with is an adult that is full enough, regulated enough, and present enough to be the person that we aim to be for our children. So ask yourself some of these questions and then pick one thing. And this is the important part, one thing that you can consistently commit to incorporating into your routine. Um, even for a month, pick a month, one thing for a month that you think would have a positive impact on your mental, emotional, or physical health. I feel like the tendency here is to feel like you have to completely overhaul your life with self-care practices. That's not true, and it actually sets you up for failure. It works against you. Keep your self-care goals small and achievable, and once you've figured out how to work one or two of them into your life on a daily basis, then you can kind of up the ante as you see fit. So that's kind of a general overview of what self-care practices might look like in your day-to-day. But before we move on to supporting others, there's one other really important element of self-care that I think is an area many of us struggle with, and that's the concept of just being patient and compassionate with yourself. I cannot stress this enough. We are our own worst critics. And that mean little voice in your head that's fixated on all the ways you didn't measure up is the enemy of self-care. And if you don't believe me, I want you to try something for me. I want you to think about the last time you took a risk or experienced a failure of some sort. It could be big or small. And think about all of the critical things you told or continue to tell yourself when you've convinced yourself that you're not good enough or haven't done something well enough or haven't tried hard enough. Think about some of the things that your inner monologue tells you. Now I want you to imagine someone saying those exact same things to someone you love. This could be your spouse, a friend, your child, a sibling, someone you admire, love, and respect. Well, you've, you've probably discovered a few things in doing this exercise. One, those are hurtful, unfair, cruel words. And if anyone ever said them to a loved one, you would probably be horrified or outraged or just like super sad that someone spoke to them in that way. Two, on the most fundamental level, those words aren't even true. They're not true about your loved one. And guess what? They're not true about you either. It's truly amazing the things that we are comfortable saying to ourselves that we would never, ever in a million years let someone say to a friend or loved one. Um, And this is an extremely important part of self-care. Give yourself grace. Be compassionate with yourself. You do not need to be everything for everyone. And the expectation that you should is wildly unrealistic. Um, You don't need to say yes to everything. And again, the expectation that you should is wildly unrealistic. You are exactly what the world needs, and you are exactly who your children need you to be, flaws and all. Flaws are some of the most beautiful parts of who we are, and your kids need to see them. If there's one self-care practice I could encourage you to adopt, it's this. Every time you hear that nasty narrator in your head telling you, try harder, do more, be better, I want you to pause and imagine that that little voice is talking to your best friend. 
And then tell yourself what you think your best friend would need to hear. Maybe that's raw and honest feedback. Accountability is an important part of growth, and maybe there is genuinely something you needed to do differently. That's important to acknowledge, but think about how you would acknowledge this with a loved one. It's unlikely that your verbiage would be as cruel or unforgiving as that little voice in your head often is to you. Um, And then again, maybe what's needed is just simply encouragement. Maybe it's a funny joke. Maybe it's permission to just be completely human and embrace your flaws and let go of the judgment around not being perfect. Um, Whatever it is, tune into what that need is. Give yourself what you need and communicate what that need is to the people around you so that they can help you meet it. Um, So that kind of wraps up my thoughts on self-care. I hope some of that helped to clarify some of it. Um, And now we're going to kind of move into how to support other adults. If you um, have a maybe have a friend who is struggling or if you're an administrator, you want to know how to um, or a a manager of some sort um, or even a teacher who's who's maybe managing other people and you want to know sort of how to how to best support adults in their emotional and physical health. Um, so for f- if you have a friend or family member who is struggling with their emotional health, physical health, mental health, maybe they have um, you know, some sort of circumstance happening in their life right now that's overwhelming. It could be around parenting. Um, a lot of times it's around parenting. Um, I won't spend too much time on this because I think some of this is um, fairly well known, but I think there are a few points that are important to sort of know when when supporting someone else. Um, Number one is that the the most powerful thing you can do is to just be there and listen. Avoid like judgment or even trying to come up with solutions. A lot of times when we're in a hard time, we have thought over the possible solutions a million times. Sometimes there is no great solution. Um, and someone sort of like generating solutions for you just kind of feels, can kind of feel dismissive because it's very likely that that person has already thought about all the possible solutions. Um, and what they likely need most is for you to just listen and be there. Um, secondly, especially if this is someone um, struggling with their parenting or str- struggling with something with their child, avoid offering unsolicited parenting advice. Um, If someone asks you for your advice, by all means, um, feel free to support in that way. Um, But avoid offering unsolicited parenting advice and really encourage this concept of sort of not being alone. I think sometimes when we offer unsolicited parenting advice, what it implies to the parent in question is you're not doing this right. I know better or I have a better way, let me tell you about it, right? And I think the thing to really encourage in friends who are parents is that you're not alone, you're not a bad parent, your kid is not a bad child, um, and I think unfortunately, while well-intentioned, sometimes when we offer parenting advice that someone didn't ask us for, what, what we imply to them is like, ooh, something's wrong with your kid or something's wrong with the way you're doing this. Let me help you. Um, so try to avoid doing that. Um, and third is just take some things off of their plate. What are some things that you could do that would help them out? Can you like pick the kids up from school one day? That is super helpful, right? Um, you know, is there some sort of, are there responsibilities within their family that you could maybe help them out with? Um, taking things off of someone's plate who is overwhelmed is one of the most powerful things that you can do for them. 
Um, what brings this person joy, peace, calm? What does this person love? Does this person love reading? Do they love skiing? Do they love going for a run? And how can you help them um, do some of those things for themselves? Whether it's that you are like, hey, I'll go for a run with you. Let's meet up. Or it's like, hey, you really want an hour to run by yourself. Let me come over and watch your newborn or, um, you know, whatever it is, may, it may be, how can you sort of support not what you think they need, um, but what they actually need? What is it that a lot of times we tend to offer the support that we would need um, based on our own love languages or our own needs? Um, but really, what is it that, that this person needs and how can you support that? And then finally, my, my last piece of advice for friends is to just communicate, reach out, stay in touch, and be consistent about it. I think um, in the world of texting, a lot of times we don't always reach out as much as we should um, or could, and a lot of times it's inconsistent. Um, just make it a habit to check in with this person and say, hey, was thinking about you. How's it going? Um, and so I'm, that's kind of all I'm going to say around supporting friends and family because I think some of that is a little more um, well accepted or a little more well known. Um, but that being said, you all know where to find me if you have more questions around that. Um, and so the last topic we're going to cover is really for those of you out there who are managers or administrators and want to know sort of how do I meet my employees in their humanity and provide a supportive environment for them to flourish both as professionals and as people. So my biggest piece of advice I could offer you as an administrator or manager who's investing in the mental and physical health of the adults in your building is to really turn a critical eye onto your practices and procedures and really ask yourself if your policies as a school or as an organization support the well-being of the adults. Um, these are adults who give so much of their blood, sweat, and tears to the kiddos in your building. Um, and I think particularly teaching can be a very selfless job um, where we often ask people to um, put the needs of others above the needs of, them, of their own needs. Um, and there's sort of this guilt around having your own needs because you feel like you should always be thinking about the children first. Um, the reality is we have to think about the adults first. Um, and I think when asked if your policies are supportive of employees, our gut reaction is to immediately just sort of say like, of course, I love my staff. Like all of my policies support my staff. But I find that there are a number of policies that are common in particularly schools, but probably in organ other organizations as well, that are just like fundamentally at odds with what teachers um, and other school staff need to feel empowered to sort of take the time they need to take care of themselves. Um, and so with that in mind, here are a few kind of tangible questions to ask yourself if you are a school leader or an administrator or a manager. Um, number one, have I established a culture within my school in which it's accepted, embraced, and encouraged to take time off? No questions asked. And I want to make this abundantly clear. If you are interested in supporting the well-being of your staff, asking for doctor's notes or even asking why a teacher is taking a day off, period, is really not good practice. Um, when we ask teachers to give us sort of a quote-unquote legitimate reason for their absence, a few things happen. Number one, 
we increase the stigma around tending to mental health because many of us will legitimize coming to work when we're depressed or anxious or overwhelmed in a way we never would if we had the flu. Um, and so this, this practice is um, inherently biased against taking care of your mental health. Two, this really whittles away at trust within your organization, and it asks employees to divulge private information that, frankly, is none of our business. Um, it doesn't matter why your employees are taking the day off. If one of your teachers is taking the day off to run errands and sleep in, that's perfectly legitimate, and we need to trust that our employees' intuition um, and ability to know what it is that they need at any given moment in order to make it through the day, week, month, year, whatever it is. Um, we really need to trust that they know what they need. And this brings me to number three, which is that this practice inherently builds bias into your policies. Because what qualifies as leg a legitimate absence, right? Who makes that call? What happens to all those gray areas in life that fall somewhere between your own personal understanding of what legitimate versus illegitimate is? Um, when we ask for teachers to give us quote-unquote legitimate reasons for absences, we make the process of time off inherently subjective. Um, and subjectivity leaves a lot of room for sort of unchecked, probably unintentional, but inherent biases. Um, if your employee asks for a day off, they should never need to give you a reason why. And barring an extreme circumstance like you know, half the school already has the day off, or it's like a pre-established blackout date, although I would still encourage you even on blackout dates to consider, um, you know, extreme circumstances like someone's very sick or someone has a family member who's ill. Um, I would still encourage you to consider allowing people to use those as paid days, even if they're blackout dates. Um, but barring something like that, they should always be granted the time off that they ask for. Now, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I, I already know. What about the people who abuse the system? The people who just like call out because they didn't feel like showing up that day. What are we going to do about that? If we let people just always have the time off that they, that they ask for, you know, people are going to abuse the system. Let me assure you, while these employees exist, they are few and far between and a very small percentage of your workforce. There has been extensive research on this in recent years. They exist, I won't deny that, but ultimately the solution is not for you to limit everyone else's access to time off. The solution is to address that situation as exactly what it is, which is an outlier. Um, all current research shows that when we give people the time off that they need, they actually take less time off and are more productive and more effective in the workplace. When we say to people, hey, I trust you, here is unlimited time off, um, all of the research shows that people actually take less time off because that establishment of trust between manager um, and, you know, teacher, counselor, whoever it is that you're managing um, makes, people real, makes people really respect you um, and makes people less likely to break that trust. Um, so while of course there are people who will take advantage of the system, this is just the reality of the world. Um, ultimately, when we penalize an entire workforce for outlying behavior, it's an attempt at control. It's because we're saying like, this isn't okay, we need to control people. Resist this urge to feel the need to have like complete and utter control over all employees at all time. And look at the bigger picture. Um, the effects of the overarching culture of your school 
are far more powerful than the sway of one employee who's taking advantage of the system. Um, and it has an immense trickle-down effect on your school climate. Focus on the our overarching culture and deal with the one-off situations as they arise because that general school morale and school culture is the most powerful force um, that your school really has. That one person who's taking advantage of things, most of the time, if not all the time, people see that for what it is and they're more likely um, to adopt what your general school morale and school culture is than they are to adopt practices of one sort of outlying employee who um, may be taking advantage of the system. The next question I'd encourage you to ask yourself is, when a staff member is out, who covers their classes? So there's a very common practice, I think, in a lot of schools of having fellow teachers cover classes for each other when they're out in the name of sort of preserving quote-unquote school culture. This idea that, well, we would rather not hire substitutes, we would rather bring in someone who already knows the ins and outs of our organization, um, and so we're going to ask other classroom teachers, other um, teachers who have full schedules, to sacrifice prep periods to cover classes for someone who is out. Um, and I think this is done with well intentions. I think schools, you know, they genuinely do want to make sure that whoever's coming in um, kind of holds consistent expectations in the classroom and sort of knows the ropes a little bit. But um, there are a lot of blind spots with this policy. This puts an enormous amount of pressure on your other teachers to have to give up planned prep periods and sort of be on call for an extremely large portion of the day. This ultimately, ultimately means that not only are they probably less, less present as substitute teachers in those moments, they're also likely less present and less regulated for every other class they teach that day, all of their own classes. Um, they're likely a little less present for because they're tired, they're overwhelmed, they didn't have a prep period. Um, it's just, it, it's not good for, for their mental or emotional state. Um, and so this has a ripple effect on not just the classroom that's being covered, but on so many other classrooms because you're really overworking um, teachers who are already busy. Um, it also discourages people from taking the time off that they need because teachers are acutely aware that every time they're out, they're inconveniencing a peer that they respect and care about. This guilt about affecting a coworker in this way is so toxic to the health focus culture you're trying to create around taking time off. If every time I need to take a day off, I worry um, that I'm inconveniencing a number of my peers, I'm less likely to take that day even if I really need it. Um, and that means that you have teachers coming in that maybe are not prepared to be there um, or could really use uh, a time off either for their physical health or their mental health and they're there anyway because they're um, you know concerned about about placing their workload on someone else um, and ultimately there's no reason that substitutes can't also be trained in our school culture the bottom line here is that training substitutes in our school culture is more work for administrators Whereas using teachers to cover each other's classes or kind of just like throwing substitutes to the wolves, like we're not going to train you, we're just going to give you this classroom full of kids, right, is more work for teachers. And so this is a question about your management style, right? Um, training substitutes 
is absolutely more work for you as an administrator, but it's less work for your teachers. Whereas asking teachers to cover for each other is less work for you, more work for your teachers. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm of the belief that, that those of us who are in um, sort of leadership, leadership positions in school, it's our job to make teachers' lives easier. Um, and so this is really something I'd encourage you to invest in is you know, investing in, in training your substitutes on your school culture. And, you know, this ultimately not training your subs on, on the school culture negatively impacts the development of our children. Our role as support per personnel is just that, support. Um, it is certainly more work for you as an administrator to train and oversee substitute teachers so that they're in line with your school's practices and policies. But it's ultimately what's best for the kids in your school. And more often than not, substitutes are familiar faces. They're not just like random people who have never stepped inside your building before. Um, very often, you might you probably call the same substitutes over and over again when someone is out. Um, if you take the time to train your substitutes and really give them the support that they need, your kids are better served, your teachers are better supported, and you're also actively investing in the skills and experience of your substitutes, which ultimately prepares them for positions as classroom teachers. Um, and then going along with this, when a different teacher is in the classroom, what does the support look like? Whether this is a substitute teacher or a fellow um, or, you know, teacher on staff, are there administrators scheduled to be in those classrooms supporting from time to time throughout the day? Because the reality is that even the most experienced sub will likely need some support. And even if the substitute is a fellow teacher on staff um, who's at the school and is taking over, they're likely to be tired, stressed, and a little burnt out that day. So, you know, when, when someone's stepping into a classroom, what does your support from your leadership team look like on those days? Next, what are your actual time off policies? Do teachers truly get an adequate amount of days off within the school year? Um, do your part-time employees or permanent subs receive paid time off? In the majority of organizations that I've worked with and been a part of, the answer to this is no. And that's a huge problem, both for school climate and for just sort of like the basic practice of compassion. Asking your staff members to choose between their livelihood, aka paying their bills, and their health is both deeply inhumane and just toxic to your school climate because at least your staff coming in when they really should be home because they can't afford to not get paid. And we know that when you're not operated in an emotionally regulated way, your kids and your fellow coworkers suffer. Um, similarly, or I guess along the same lines, when you look at your data, do certain staff members need far more time off than what they're being allotted? So are teachers with chronic illnesses, children, um, ailing or aging family members, mental health diagnoses, are these are people with these um, sort of external factors consistently running out of paid time off? If so, the policy needs to change. Again, I know you're going to worry that if you give all employees more time off, that it'll be a free-for-all. But I'll remind you again, the people who need it will take it, and the people who don't won't. Um, that is what all of the research and all of the data on um, effectiveness in the workplace is showing right now. Um, your school environment will be a more equitable place that invests in employees of all kinds of backgrounds, experiences, stages in life, and you'll retain some of your best talent if they have the time to, they, they need to take care of themselves. Um, you know, so often we, we find um, many schools 
I find, um, you know, lose some of their, some of their most experienced people to stages in life that require more work-life balance or, um, you know, someone has a sick parent or someone themselves has a chronic illness, whether that be a mental health diagnosis or a physical illness. Um, if those people cannot take the time that they time off that they need, it is very likely that they will eventually leave your organization. And that means that you're losing really experienced and really um, wonderful members of your staff. And finally, when a stra- staff member is consistently struggling, whether that's with a mental health issue, a physical health issue, or just with sort of balancing the demands of the job, what does the response look like? So often when I look around at school practices, I see that when a teacher's struggling, we respond by giving them more things to do that's disguised as support. So here's a list of things to implement in your classroom that'll make things run smoother. Or here are some concrete goals we want you working towards. Or here's a weekly observation where I like sit in the back of your classroom and give you feedback. Now, these are all absolutely necessary and important practices for all of your teachers. But for teachers who may be struggling outside the classroom, this probably isn't enough. We probably also need to be asking, what can I take off of your plate? What times of day can I give you an extra set of hands to make the job feel more manageable? Um, What duties during your day would someone else be glad to take over for a short period of time? Again, you know, people, people in, in general tend to be team players without you having to ask them to be. Um, a lot of times when we say we need you to be a team player, it's a way we kind of like gaslight people into doing things. In general, people are more than willing to do things like that and to pitch in. You know, if you have a staff member who has lunch duty, there is likely someone else on staff who would be happy to take over their lunch duty for two months you know, while they care for their aging parent, right? Um, So think about things like that. Again, um, this isn't saying that we don't want to be giving teachers feedback or ideas for how to effectively run their classrooms, but feedback without some relief in duties or responsibilities or time um, is really just more work. And while the majority of your staff is likely in a place where they are willing and able to access this extra work, For a teacher who's truly overwhelmed or distracted by external issues um, or grappling with something personal, this extra work is very unlikely to be the support that they need if we don't simultaneously lighten their load a little bit. Um, And here's the important part. This has to be an accepted, welcomed, normalized practice within your school. This can't be um, sort of the message of like, you're not doing your job properly, so we're taking responsibilities away from you. This has to come from a place where it is understood that this is like a, hey, we're all human and we all need to give ourselves grace and patience sometimes and you're going through a lot right now. Let us help you get back to the place you're trying to get to emotionally, mentally, physically, whatever it is. The understanding that these practices are not punitive, um, but are truly normed and welcomed within the school community is essential to teachers being able to access this support effectively um, rather than feeling guilty or shamed for needing it. Um, And so I think the bottom line is that there are solutions to all of these problematic practices, but they take work and they take a willingness to think with innovation um, and they take an investment from you as a a school leader in the big picture and the long-term goals of your school or organization. Um, y'all, this 
podcast is probably my longest running one to date. Um, As you can see, this is a topic that I am extremely passionate about. I truly believe that the most important investment that we can make in our kids is the investment we make in the health of the adults who work with and raise them. Um, And I find that while so many of us say that this is a value for us, our schools or our organizations, um, some of our practices are just fundamentally at odds with what the adults in our world need. So I hope that I was able to shine a little light on some of the ways that you could start thinking about what support and taking care of adults looks like in a little differently. Um, And I hope that this was helpful to some of you out there. For you parents out there, one of the services that I offer within my business is parenting support. And the crux of this service is how I can support you and how you can support yourself. And for you administrators out there, one of my other services that I offer is school culture consulting and professional development. And school climate, staff morale, student satisfaction are some of my biggest passions when we talk about school culture. So as always, if you're looking for further support in any of these areas, please don't hesitate to contact me. I would be so, so excited to work with you. Um, Thank you so much for being here with me for this episode of the Happy Hearted Kids podcast. Um, I was so happy to finally get back to this with you guys this week, and I will talk to you next time. In the meantime, take care of yourselves so you can take care of those little ones. You have been listening to the Happy Hearted Kids podcast with Renee Kashmiri, owner of Thrive Child Development Services in Newton, Massachusetts. For more information on social and emotional resources for your child's development, visit www.thrivecds.org or email Renee at rene@thrivecds.org. at thrivecds.org.